So, when me and Pastor Brad were talking about the selection of this text this morning, he challenged me to choose something that go along that went along with all this reading. Now, you might wonder what all this reading was about, and it was to form my own ecclesiology, or what is known as the doctrine of the church. So after we prayed about it and talked about it for a little bit, we both thought there's no better place in the Word to talk about the church than the book of Ephesians. So if you want to locate the book of Ephesians with me, we will be in chapter 4 today. But to just give a little bit of background. So Ephesians is in the second half of our Christian Bible. It was written by the Apostle Paul, who ministered the gospel all over his known world at the time. Now this is a letter, and throughout his ministry, he wrote many letters to confront, encourage, strengthen, and build up churches in that early church, right after, uh, early church world. Ephesians is what we call a prison epistle. So it was written while Paul was incarcerated for preaching the gospel. It is what is known as a circular letter. So a circular letter is a letter that is written not just to one person, but to a group of people. So in this case, it's written to the Ephesian church, but also a group of churches. So the final audience, you could say, is not just the Ephesians church, but churches in general, much like today. Like it's a letter also to us. So we can cling fast to this today. The overall tone of the book So over this past summer, we looked over through many ways in which we can read our Bible and understand the text better. So one of the ways is finding tone. And the tone of this book is much like right now, it's celebration, like the end of the internship, the the blessing you guys have been to me. And and more so, it's a celebration of what God has done. It's, it's, It's joy. It's full of rich sweetness and meditation on the greatness of our God and the beauty of his church. So I hope to carry on Paul's tone to us this morning. Look at this as a grateful exhortation, a thanking love letter to Emmanuel Bible Church to continue on what you're doing. So what is this book all about? What is Ephesians all about? Well, a major theme that we're going to look at, which is all throughout our text, is that those who have faith in Christ have been unified not only to him, but to each other by the Holy Spirit. The church is one unified body. And we see the invisible church, which we'll break down in a little bit, made visible in the local church. So the passage we're looking at is Ephesians 1 to 16. This is a big passage. So something strange or different that you could say that's happening this morning is we're hopping into the middle of a book instead of preaching all the way to this. So that's just what it is this morning, and hopefully I'll be able to establish some context so we get there and so we know what we're, know what we're hitting away at. So before we get into the text, I would like to give you the melodic line, if you remember from our summer, or the main idea. So this is the overarching idea that we'll come back to, that will kind of build our points out, and something to hang your hat on or remember as we go throughout this sermon. So because of our great calling... We should walk in the spirit-given unity using Christ-given gifts for a mature body. So let us read verses 1 through 6 this morning. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So our first point that we should see is, because of our calling, we should walk in the Spirit-given unity. We begin in verse 1 by seeing the exhortation of our calling. So Paul begins his text with the word, therefore. So if you're unfamiliar with Christianity or you remember from our summer, oftentimes when we seek to understand the meaning of any given text, we look for linking words. So in Paul's writings, therefore often functions as a glue that glues together what came before it and what came after it to make one cohesive whole. So think of this in our second Samuel series. Ephesians 4 is kind of where the tributaries of all the other chapters flow into and then get applied out of. So an epistle in the Bible, what we're looking at, a letter, is normally structured with an explanation of doctrine and the application of that doctrine. In Ephesians, it's no different. So in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, the, the doctrine we could call, as one commentator says, the calling of the church. In Ephesians 4 through 6, the application of that doctrine we could call the conduct of the church. So what are the things that come before the therefore? Or as some preachers say, what's it there for? What is the calling of the church? Maybe that's a better question to ask. Well, Paul begins in chapter 1 by writing a glorious explanation, a praise, a song, and the biggest sentence in the Bible, of the eternal plan of the triune God to save his church from their sins, adopting them into his family, giving all of those whom he has redeemed and forgiven an inheritance with and through Christ, sealing and communicating it to them with his Holy Spirit. The calling of the church is the gospel of Christ. It is our union in him and with him. Paul continues in chapter 1 to thank God for the public faith of this church. And then he serves to ask God to point their eyes to what he has accomplished through his son, in which he has placed him on high. So basically, chapter 1 says, Christ planned to redeem his church through Christ, and has done so uniting the church in Christ, and then he has seated Christ as the head of the universe, and also his church. In chapter 2, which we read part of this morning, Paul writes a spiritual biography of the individual saints going from being dead in sin, away from God, and being brought near and made alive through and in Christ. We see how in chapter 2, like we read this morning, that the wall that existed between Jews and Gentiles was torn down to make one unified body. We'll break that down in in a few minutes, but that's just to give an overview. So the church, as the text says, is one new man, a new created, a new recreated humanity as those have that have been united in Christ. In chapter 3, Paul talks about how God himself has made him a minister of this gospel. He reveals the mystery of God, 
which is that Jews and Gentiles are now one united people. And how we, the church, have access to talk to the same God and Father. Paul then closes chapter 3 with the prayer that Pastor Brad prayed with us for us this morning. That they would have spiritual strength to comprehend this beautiful love of Christ and be rooted in Him as the church. So, in verse 1 we see, this is the calling to which we have been called. The church as one new man is commanded to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. They are to walk in a way that is honorable to the salvation that God has accomplished. We are called to walk in a way that is honorable to the salvation God has accomplished. The prede- His predestining purposes to adopt us who were spiritually dead in our sin and raise us to spiritual life with Christ. This is the calling. It's not us being called to be a business owner or us being called to be an intern even. But it's God calling us His children, sons and daughters, heirs to His promises, the church and the body of Christ. This is who we are. And we should walk in a way that is fitting to this. So Ephesians 4-6 through serve as God's vision and exhortation to the body of Christ. It is as if God, through Paul, has drafted for us, the church, a constitution for us to adhere to. Now this verse, verse 1, will serve as a thesis statement for the rest of the book of Ephesians from chapter 4 on. But we won't get into all that this morning. So we see here in verses 1-16 through 16, the beginning steps of this worthy walk. Something also to notice is that Paul is dressing the entire church. If you pay attention here in verse 1, he says you twice, and later he'll say we. Paul means to encapsulate all the members of the church in his application of this text. So let us apply this not only only individually, but corporately. So how are the Ephesians to walk worthy of this glorious calling? Well, our calling exhorts us, this is verse 3, to maintain the Spirit-given unity. So the church walks worthy by maintaining the Spirit-given unity. So how do we know that unity is important in this passage? Well, once again, like this past summer, another method we used to understand the meaning of passages is called top and tail. So top and tail is where we look at the beginning of the passage and the end of the passage, and oftentimes the emphasis is kind of revealed. So we see here implicitly in verse 1, you, like you together. We see in verse 3, the unity of the Spirit. And then we go to the end of this unit of thought. In verse 13, we can see we, unity of the faith. And then in verse 16, we can see that the togetherness of the body, the unity of the body is essential for its building up. And of course, we'll get to that later today. But that is just one way that we can notice in this passage that the unity of the Spirit is so important. So how should the church maintain the Spirit-given unity? So before I break down verse 2, I think perhaps maybe we should know why this is so important and what it is. So what is the unity of the Spirit here in verse 3? Well, the unity is the sharing of the Holy Spirit by the church is the connections we as Christians all have to one another through the Holy Spirit. Now, a question that arises is, when did the Spirit 
unify us? When were we given this unity? Well, we read it this morning in our assurance of pardon that in verse, in chapter 1, verse 13, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We were sealed and united to Christ in his church when we first believed, the moment we first believed. The Spirit created in us and communicated to us this unity. But why does that matter? So why is that important? Well, because this unity came at great cost and it brought two opposing things together. Two things that are more opposed than Clemson and USC fans on game day. So where would we see that? Well, we read that. Brother Tom led us in that reading this morning. If you want to look at chapter 2, verse 13, and we'll kind of skim through it a little bit. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It cost Christ his life to give us this unity in him and to each other. So what does it do? Well, it makes the people of God one. If you look at verse 11, at one time those who were not Jews were called Gentiles in the flesh. We were called uncircumcised. We were different. And we see fast forwarding that Christ is our peace who's made us both one. The, those who weren't Gentiles, those who weren't the uncircumcised, and those who were. He made us one. He broke down in his flesh the wall of hostility that divided us. He did this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create one new man in place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, in the, in the ancient context of this, many churches were filled with both Jews and Gentiles, both Jews and people who weren't Jews. Now, why is this distinction important? Well, if we know the story of the Bible, we know that man sinned and then God sought to redeem man from their sin. And God first sought to do that through the people of Israel. So Israel became God's chosen people, or the Jews became God's chosen people. So anybody who was not of God's chosen people was, was different. They were weird. They were, there's a, a wall between them. But now we see in this verse that the mystery of the gospel, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus when we bring chapter 2 and 3 together, we see that that divide that once existed between the Jews and Gentiles is broken down in Christ. There is now no distinction for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ made his people one so that he might create in himself, as he said, one new man, a new humanity full of diverse peoples, reconciling both Jew, both the chosen people of God and Gentile, those who weren't, to God. Therefore, the disparity is now distinguished, and the church is one universal body, a cosmic humanity. So this, this is the unity of the Spirit. And we'll get to this a little bit later, but notice how we're not told to create this unity, but only to maintain. Because this unity was bought and accomplished by Christ and granted to us in the Spirit. So where is this spirit-given unity seen? 
Like, okay, there's this massive theological reflection. What does that have to do with us? Well, it is seen in the context of a local church. You see, to be a Christian is not only to be a part of this universal body, to be a part of everybody who believes in Christ, but also to be a part of a local body. See, the letter to the Ephesians is informing them about the realities of the invisible church, which I've already said, and how it can become visible here in the local church. We are a visible representation of the invisible church here at Emmanuel Bible Church this morning. It is a geographically bound gathering of the body. So, Christians, we have been called to the greater body, then the Spirit gathers us to a local body. Pastor Brad asked me this week, like, is it important to be a part of a local church? Is it a privilege? And I said, of course it was, because the Spirit has gathered us to it. So, it is like we have been adopted and made part of our own family. Because this is true, we should be eager to ensure the unity amongst this local body. Being united to a church is part of being a Christian. Becoming a member is a public testimony that I belong to Christ, that you belong to Christ. To say say it may be even more extreme, to be a part of the church is to be a part of Christ. To reject the church is to reject Christ. There is something to be said if you claim Christ and you are not united to a body. You might not be united to anyone other than yourself. So if the church has this unity of the Spirit, we're still in verse 3, we have been joined together by the bond of peace. So what does that mean? That the church, this body, is now at peace with God through Christ who died in our place, giving us peace. This is a crucial part of our identity as Christians. We who were once his enemies are now his friends. We who were once at war with him now have peace with him together. So because we have this peace with God, we should make every effort to maintain the spirit-given unity. So then, how do we do this? So if we look back up to verse 2, We can see this as the steps to set the pace on the path of walking worthy. So if maintaining the unity of the Spirit is the the big step, then verse 2 serves as the the steps to set the pace of doing this thing. So it is also safe to say that when we became Christians, these things were created in us. Because I don't know about you, but when I was not a Christian, I was not humble, gentle, patient, or bearing with someone else. So, see also how these steps reflect our Lord Jesus and his disposition toward us. So the first step is humility or a a lowliness. It is a posture in which an individual would view themselves lower lower than others and others greater than them. There's maybe an element of submission not in an abusive way, but that you give up your own privileges and desires and wants and rights for the sake of another. Humility is of great, great value. Whereas pride only ever breaks apart and destroys and rips down, humility nurtures, preserves, stays together. The next step is a step of gentleness. 
or meekness. This conveys the idea, as Matthew Henry says, by meekness, that excellent disposition of the soul, which makes men unwilling to provoke others and not easily to be provoked or offended with their infirmities. It is opposed to angry resentments and peevishness. So it is a a non-provoking attitude and one that doesn't get easily provoked. This, this word is itself against offense. This, now, this does not mean that people cannot be hurtful or inflict harm, but it's almost a personal disposition to be against injuries that others cause. Now, the next two steps are closely related. This is patience and bearing with one another in love. Now, patience has the idea of forbearance. That no matter what someone else did or no matter what injury might have been caused, the Ephesians were to forbear. So whether that was insulting or impatience or a lack of gentleness, whatever the injury, they weren't to take it, art, take it to heart, but to put up with one another in love. Love is the ultimate posture, and without love, this wouldn't work. I mean, this just reading this text, made me think about how Paul characterizes love in another one of his epistles. Like in 1 Corinthians 13, it's love is patient. Love is kind. It bears all things. It endures all things. And it never ends. God's great love has been poured out on the church, so the church is to love one another. See also how these attitudes show us the love of Christ, our humble King, who endured verbal insult and physical injury to the point of death, who submitted himself to the Father's plan, who considered sinful men more valuable than himself, who was meek when reviled, patient when provoked, and loving to us who by nature hated him. To walk worthy is to walk like Christ. So where do these footsteps lead? Well, that leads us right back into verse 3. The eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So the word eager here carries with it the idea of making every effort. The Ephesians, the church at Malden, is to make every effort to maintain this unity. Whether that be insults or hurt, a member or a leader falls away, sin, whether against one another or corporately, the Ephesian church Our church is to make every effort to maintain and to work against every possible opportunity for disunity. And man, is it hard work. Do we make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit that God has blessed us here with at Emmanuel Bible Church? Or has the church not served us in the way We wanted it to. Have we been offended by something someone said to us? Something someone did to us? And rather than us going to them and confronting them, we gossip about them. We slander them. We make up a false accusation about them. We nurture our hurt and pain as it grows to bitterness and festers and it gets all gross. How often... Do we try to break what God has brought together? Maybe think about it this way. If Christ has forgiven us 
for injuries we afflict on his own body, we should make every effort to reconcile and forgive amongst his body. So you might ask, why should the Ephesians do this? What is, what is the basis for this? Well, we'll see in verses 4 through 6, because of the shared and unique nature of our calling. This section, 4 through 6, would be seven different sermons, all the ones. But what Paul is trying to emphasize here is the shared nature of the church's calling. As we've already broken down, instead of two bodies, we're one body. All the people of God are part of the same body. We don't share a different Holy Spirit. We have the same Holy Spirit that unites us together. The church has the same hope, which is the same Lord, Jesus Christ. The church has the same faith in this Jesus. And we all, as members, have undergone the same baptism in which we are all able to pray to the same Father. We have been unified in Christ and to each other by this Holy Spirit. So, we should make every effort to maintain our unity. And it runs so deep that we're a believer of all the same things. So now, as we shift to the second half of our text, something to note that is, unity is not uniformity. You might be here and you might feel a little bit different. Like, I'm gifted in a different way. Like, Becky can play the piano and you don't want to see me try. Or like many other people. But this, this unity is not universal. It's like unity through diversity. And then the next point we see, as Pastor Brad set up this morning with us praying through Psalm 68, that Christ has given the members, each individual members of his body, gifts. So point two, because of our calling, we receive Christ-given gifts. Maybe an explanation of that. Christ has given the church gifts through his incarnation and his ascension. So let's read verses 7 through 10. By grace was given to each other, each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. This is the word of the Lord. So in maintaining the unity of the Spirit, Paul begins to break down that the church was given gifts corporately and individually. Now the grace here is not the saving grace that we often talk about and think about, but it goes all the way back to chapter 3, And it's connected here in chapter 4 where Paul used the word grace to mean being given a specific gift or ministry. For Paul, it was his apostleship. And as we'll see in the next section, Paul is functioning as a gift to this church, building it up. So maybe that's a little teaser trailer for point three. Um, Paul also says grace was given to each one. So each one of us was given a gift by God. And these gifts are according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ's gift in the gospel. You could add maybe one one more one for verse 7. There is one gospel, like we sang this morning. So because of this great gift, we've all been given gifts that are close to the greatness of that gift. But where do these gifts come from? 
Well, Paul now goes into a quote from Psalm 68 and verse 18. This quote is meant to serve as the basis for which Christ has given these gifts. Now, in the original context, I mean, we read it this morning, we prayed through it this morning, but just to establish it here for those of you who weren't here, Psalm 68 is a request to God to rescue his people. It is a meditation and recognition of his former deliverance. It focuses on the triumph of Yahweh as he goes before his people and shakes the mountains and the nations. Finally, coming to the top of his holy mount, Mount Zion, and leading a train of captives in his wake. One commentator says of Psalm 68, 18, that there, there, there is a you in that verse, and that you refers to God's ascent Mount Zion in the person of the victorious king or the ark which symbolizes the presence of the invisible God. He led captives in triumphal procession as they way up, made their way up to the temple mount. I'm starting to see like something coming. Paul applies this picture then to Christ and his ascension. Although the psalm says that the kings of the nations bring gifts to God, Paul's application of this verse is that when Christ won his victory on the cross and was ascending into heaven, he won a great victory. He defeated his enemies, leading them as a host of captives behind him. And in this victory, he plundered the earth. If you remember a few weeks ago, Will Cohen preached on this, this concept of assumption and plundering the earth and giving out gifts. Now we see in this passage that Jesus is giving gifts to his people. Now, you might be a little bit confused about this quote. What, what do the captives mean? Well, the captives that Christ led behind him are, as Matthew Henry says, captivity is here put for the captives. Matthew Henry means us. And it signifies all of our spiritual enemies who brought us into captivity before. So what could, what could that mean? That Christ conquered those who conquered us, such as sin, the devil, and death. Indeed, he triumphed over all these on the cross, but the triumph was completed at his ascension when he became Lord over all and had the keys of death and Hades put into his hands. Maybe you could see here, in Christ's victory, O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? It's nowhere to be found because Christ has won the day. Another commentator says, perceiving that Psalm 68 was a song of triumph in which David celebrates all the victories which God had won through the salvation for his church. Paul properly quoted the account given of God's ascension and applied it to the person of Christ. The noblest triumph which God ever gained was when Christ, after subduing sin, death, and putting Satan to flight, rose majestically to heaven that he might exercise his glorious reign over the church. No ascension of God, more triumphant or memorable, will ever occur than that which took place when Christ was carried up to the right hand of the Father, that he might rule over all authorities and powers and might become the everlasting guardian and protector, and might I add, gifter of his people. So the next two verses, verses 9 and 10, Paul kind of explains what he just said. So Paul began with the end here in the ascension. But before Christ ascended, he must have also descended to the lower regions, which is the earth. John made a joke. He's like, we're going to tackle the age-old mystery that Christ ascended to hell. And it's like, no, 
just to tell you very simply, the lower regions are the earth. It's just the earth we walk right now. That's that's it. To the extent is the grave, but we're just going to go with the earth, all right? So, Christ came to earth, and this is what is called the incarnation. God, through the person of Jesus, becoming man. So he did this and came to earth. He lived the life we could not live. He died the death we could not die, but he did not stay dead. But he rose from the grave. And after he rose from the grave, God raised him up and ascended into heaven. So what took place? Well, I'll just tell you what Paul says took place from chapter 1. That him, or God the Father, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ in his ascension captured the spiritual oppressors, sin, death, and Satan, and led them behind him as he proceeds to victory, to ascend to his glorious throne at the right hand of the Father as king of the universe. He plunders the earth. He plunders the the world that the Satan once ruled and gives gifts to his church. It is like when the soldiers come back from war and they throw a parade and rather than them throwing candy, Christ goes, Phil, you get a gift. Connie, you get a gift. John, you get a gift. Daphne, you get a gift. Look at Christ, the ascended king who reigns in victory, giving gifts to his church. So what? What are the gifts that Christ gave? Pastor Brad kind of teed this up quite a bit in the prayer service. So what are the gifts? You might be like wondering. You're like at the edge of your seat. And why did he give these gifts? And what did those gifts do? And what does any of that have to do with us? So the next major point will answer those questions. Because of our calling, we should maintain spirit-given unity using Christ-given gifts for a mature body. The mature body will be the focus of this last section. So let's read verses, 16, or verses 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's see that the gifts that Christ gave to the church are people. They're gifted people. He gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. The apostles and the prophets were those who proclaimed the gospel to the early church. As we read this morning, they were foundational. Like they laid the foundation. The evangelists, you could look at them as church planners, taking the gospel to where it hadn't been before. 
and forming churches, much like Paul. The shepherds and teachers, we still have proclaiming the gospel today every week. We have Pastor Brad and our lay elders, and we have been gifted greatly here at Emmanuel Bible Church. Notice that although we have been gifted individually in different ways, what Paul has in mind here is that we have all been given the same gifts. Maybe even one more, like one, one gift, same gifts. So that we might use them, utilize them. And we've been gifted greatly with our elders here. But God is a generous giver. We have been longing for an associate pastor from before I even got here. We, we need more leaders and teachers in our church. So Emmanuel, are we praying that Christ would give us more of his gifts? Are we praying that God would raise up men out of this body to become gifts to this church or to others? So these are the gifts Christ has given to us. So why did he give them? Well, these gifts, we see in verse 12, are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The gifts Christ has given prepare the body to do the work of the ministry by the ministry of the word and various other things. That is why if you look in the back of your order of worship this morning, it says that the ministers of, the ministers of Emmanuel Bible Church is the congregation at large. We have a responsibility to do this work. So what is this work? Well, Paul goes on to answer that. It's the building up of the body of Christ. Christ gave these gifts so that we would actively build up one another. It is our corporate and individual responsibility. So how does the body build itself up in the context of relationships? So I would take two things. This is seen in evangelism and discipleship. Now, by evangelism, I mean by like maybe even like having that conversation with that coworker at work or just forming a relationship with someone you don't know. Oftentimes for me, it was like, oh, what did you do this weekend? It's like, oh, I get to go to church. Do you know about God? And just forming that relationship. And we sit here with the fruits of the evangelistic work of this congregation. We have been joyed to have Cindy, and he's not here, but Russell, over the past few years, that through the evangelistic efforts of this congregation, by doing something as mind-blowing and novel as going through the book of Mark, we're saved and joined and unified in the Spirit to this body and had been a part of our construction ever since. But it's not just in evangelism. It's also through discipleship. I think it's wonderful the brunch that we're having. That, that is one form of discipleship. Discipleship could be taking a person or a few people and going through a book of the Bible together. It could be grabbing a book from the bookstall and doing the same thing. Believe me, I've read all these. I can help you find a good one. <laughs> this is older men teaching younger men the word, sharing with them the breath of their wisdom, teaching them how to love their wives or what to look for in a wife. This could be a loving confrontation, an accountability relationship. This could be older women teaching younger women, as Titus 2 says, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. In short, the work of the ministry is discipleship. It doesn't have to look like programs. It doesn't have to look like massive numbers. It is nothing luxurious. It is ordinary. 
It is just organic growth. So let me tell you how Emmanuel has been a blessing to me in this way. Frank has studied many books with me many, many times and been an accountability partner, a friend, a resident theologian in my walking commentary. Whenever I prepare for a sermon, I usually study the text and talk to Frank. (laughs) Pastor Jared, from the moment I walked in before I was a member, just grabbed me and discipled me. Ron has met with me for the past eight months on Saturday mornings going through a Spurgeon book, giving me his pastoral wisdom and insight as I aspire to this. And believe me, he has a great history of insight that goes back a very long time. (laughs) I think he might have known the Apostle Paul. (laughs) Pastor Brad has been a blessing to me and has become a spiritual father. Although they're not here, I've gotten to live with Kenny and just watching him, him and all of you men parent your children and love your wives has had a great influence on me, just as a young guy. Most discipleship, most impact that you guys will have is caught rather than taught. So my spiritual athleticism over the past two years has been worked to death by all this catching I've had to do. I have become a better man a better Christian, a greater lover of this body, a greater lover of others, and a greater lover of my Lord through the discipleship here at Emmanuel Bible Church. So continue to do what you're doing. Don't stop. And be encouraged that you are faithful. Now, I'm not just benefiting greatly from this. I'm also doing the work of the ministry too. So, since then, a guy and I are going through a book of the Bible and then Soon afterward, hopefully he'll do the same. The young adult guys and I started working through Colossians this summer. And we'll continue to do so, Lord willing, as the school year kicks off. So as much as I have been poured into, it flows right back out. And this is the work of the ministry. I think we have an excellent pastor and a bunch of awesome lay elders that have equipped us well. So let us (laughs) carry out the construction of our body. So in maintaining our spirit-given unity, we use Christ-given gifts. So what do we do with this as we build ourselves up together? What is the desired effect for the maturity of our body? So now we're in verse 13. We see kind of the purpose of these things here. The spirit-given unity, Christ-given gifts, the ministry of the saints, they all work in unison as we reach maturity in Christ. Notice that I mentioned before in verse 13, the word we, this is us together, is to be attained together. It is not just, oh, this person is growing, they're doing so good, or they're, they're, they're doing awesome. No, while there is an element of personal growth in this, the emphasis is on the entire body growing and maturing. To be mature is to be together. To be immature is to be alone. So what does this maturity look like? Well, Paul hit it here in a second. The unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son. In the original language, these two are connected. And this goes all the way back to the first part of chapter 4. The unity of the faith. There is one gospel on which we stand. You see, sometimes Christians like to dissociate, disassociate and divide, separate and segregate, to build little moats around themselves. But what Paul is saying is that that is immature. 
A person who is mature in Christ is one who desires unity amongst the body. Unity and to be together. And does this with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. Not only do mature Christians grow in the unity of faith together, but also in the knowledge of the Son together. Knowing, understanding, loving Christ more. And as we do this individually, it should affect us in doing this corporately. It's almost a never-ending flow. If we grow in the unity of our faith together, then we should grow in the unity of the knowledge of the Son together. And then that leads to more faith, and then that leads to more knowledge of the Son, which leads to more faith, which leads to knowledge of the Son. How beautiful are the overflowing benefits of Spirit-given unity and Christ-given gifts that lead us to maturity. And we need the body for this. We cannot grow together. We cannot listen to this text if we are not together. It is as if, it is as if the deeper our relationship with Christ is, the deeper our unity and relationship with another should be. So where does this lead? Well, this leads to mature manhood or a mature person. This serves as an obvious contrast to what happens in what Paul breaks down in verse 14 with the children illustration. But this individual corporate maturity is the body growing to what it is supposed to be. Well, what is it supposed to be? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's verse 13 as well. Christ is the standard for what the church should look like. Now, that doesn't mean we'll do this perfectly. Of course not. But this is what we are striving for in all these things that we're talking about. This means that as we mature, we should look more and more like the head. And this is done by using everything we've been talking about to nurture his growth so that we look more like Christ. It's like we've all been clothed with his righteous robes. And they're really big on us. But as we grow together, as we mature together, as we help and love one another, we all fill out these clothes so that the world can see that we are justified. We are Christ's. We have his number. We have his jersey on our back. So why does this maturity help the body? So now we're in verse 14. So that we're no longer like children. So if, we're, if the church is to grow and to mature, we cannot be like babies anymore in our understanding and perception of things. The building up of the body serves to protect us as individuals from being deceived. How often does a new book come out, a new podcast, an influential Christian personality, or a plausible argument that someone is using from Scripture to deceive us, to take us astray. The illustrations here serve to what happens to us as individuals when these things kind of hit us. The onslaught of this new and strange doctrine is like waves at the beach, like throwing us all away from each other. Or it's like wind or a tornado that drives us, drives in between us and throws us apart. These doctrines, they're, they're cunning, they're crafty, they're deceitful. They might sound good. But So be careful, beloved, as school starts back up, that we are not, that you are not carried away by strange doctrine. We should be glad, Emmanuel Bible Church, that we have such 
faithful leaders and a faithful congregation that are rooted in the word of God as our final authority. We need the church. We need each other to safeguard one another from this. Because these things are often not the way that we learned Christ. Individually, we normally cannot stand against the teaching of these deceitful men. But together, we will stand firm in the word and in the unity of our faith. So how does this body develop? How do we grow into these robes? Now we're in verse 15 and 16. We're nearing the end here. So rather than falling away, rather than being driven apart, the church is to speak the truth in love. So what is the truth? Well, I think, Pastor Brad, help me with this, that the truth is the gospel that we've been talking about in verses 1 to 3. The truth being spoken in love is done by the preaching of the gospel, the church living lives that proclaim the gospel, building each other up in ways that lead back to the gospel. It leads not only to ground us, but to grow us. And that's the goal, that we would become like him, the head. And as our lives are transformed by Christ, our goal should be to be like Christ. He's not just our goal, though. He is also the source of our growth. We see that from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint which with is equipped. Christ is putting us together. He has taken the individual members of Emmanuel Bible Church, of the church at Ephesus, of the church, and put them together. And as we interact by building each other up, it's as if the joints are connecting and functioning properly. And this causes us to grow and to build ourselves up in this love. Notice here that there are no dismembered limbs in the body. The hand belongs on the arm and not on the ground. The ear belongs on the side of the head and not on the table. And most importantly, the heart belongs in the body. So when a person is walking away from the church, they don't attend for months, we don't see them, we don't know them, it's as if part of our body is cutting itself off and walking away. Pastor Brad gave this illustration in our application lunch that in war, when soldiers were just ripped up by bombs or grenades or something, the medics would grab those dismembered limbs and put them on their chest because that belongs to the body. And so do you to this body. Can't you see how much we love you? Can't you see how much Christ loves you? Can't you feel his hands putting you together with this body? So, this leads us to the end. Because of our great calling, we should maintain the unity of the Spirit, the Spirit-given unity, using our Christ-given gifts for a mature body. We have been exhorted to walk worthy of our glorious salvation. We should do this by making every effort to maintain this. Christ has given us and blessed us with many gifted men and there are still more to come. So equip this body to build itself up as we reach maturity and look more like our head, Christ. So all of this reading 
pales in comparison to the philosophy of the church that God has written here in chapter 4 of Ephesians. This is the Bible's philosophy for ministry. This is our constitution. It has been said that the chief end of the church is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever together. So, Emmanuel Bible Church, let us do that this morning. Let us do that this week by maintaining our unity, utilizing the blessing of our elders, and build each other up for the maturity of our body.